Cable news, noisy, boring, out of touch. That's why Salem News Channel is different. We keep you in the know. Streaming 24-7 for free. Home to the greatest collection of conservative voices like Dennis Prager, Jay Sekulow, Mike Gallagher, and more. Salem News Channel is unfiltered and unapologetic. Watch anytime, on any screen at snc.tv and local now channel 525 hello and welcome to in the word a ministry of calvary chapel of orlando we hope that god speaks to you today as we continue our study verse by verse chapter by chapter with senior pastor will ramirez in the book of joshua God had given the Israelites victories over the Canaanite kings that ruled in the southern region of the land, and the northern cities that had banded together under Jabin the king of Hazor. The rest of the cities were left without armies, of which Israel easily and quickly conquered. The Canaanites that died refused to repent, so God brought judgment through Israel. We consider God's stretched out hand of mercy as we look at the account of Jacob wrestling with God while we continue with Pastor Will in Joshua chapter 11, verse 20. You know, Jacob, he fought and he fought and he fought against God. Every opportunity God gave him to repent, he always found some way, right? Some way to make it work. Some way to get out of the mess. And then finally God said, I'm going to put you in a mess you can't, you can't get out of. He's got his brother marching in front of him. He's got Laban marching behind him. He has nowhere to run now. And so he sends his family over the river and he goes up on a hill and he's still fighting with God. He doesn't want to cross over. He doesn't want to trust the Lord. He's still trying to come up with a plan. And God says, enough is enough. And so that's when the WWE announcer comes out onto the hilltop and the Lord comes out in the spandex and he just tackles him, body slams him. Jacob's wrestling with God all night, right? Finally, the Lord says, I am done fighting you, son. And he just touches his thigh. He doesn't have to do anything. He just touches his thigh and knocks his hip out of joint. At that point, Jacob, now he can't even fight with God anymore. And I, I don't remember which Old Testament minor prophet it is. I want to say it's, anyway, I think it's Hosea. But it tells us that with tears in his eyes, he clung to the Lord and he said, please don't leave me without blessing me. I got nothing. I don't know what to do. I got nowhere to go. The Lord turned to him and he said, what's your name? That's a weird way to respond to a plea for a blessing. I need a blessing, God. I need something. He says, what's your name? I wonder if that's the first time Jacob contemplated how he'd lived his life. Because he says it's Jacob, heel catcher, conniver, dirty, sneaky thief, always has a way to weasel out of the trouble he gets himself into. That's who I am. And now I'm out of, out of options. And the Lord says, that's not your name anymore. You're going to be called Israel because now I'm going to run your life. You're going to be governed by God. You're going to be a prince of God. You're going to be someone I lead from now on because you prevailed in prayer. You came to me and you asked me, you finally humbled yourself, Jacob, and I have a blessing for you. It's a new way of living, a new relationship with me. You're going to trust me from here on out. And you know, Jacob, he wasn't always right. There were times the Bible calls him Jacob again instead of Israel because he's acting like Jacob again. But from that point forward, we see the trajectory of Jacob's life change. And when we get to the end of his life, we see a man who trusted God so fully, who knew God so fully that he worshiped on the very thing that was the sign of his injury, of his failure, that he lost the fight with God. He worshiped on his staff. The thing he needed to walk because his hip was out of joint. And he worshiped. That's the last thing we see Jacob do before he crawls up into his bed and dies. Isaac, his dad, he was so out of touch with God. He didn't know, he didn't know anything that God was doing in his life. God had told him, he said, the younger is going to rule over the, the older. Isaac, he, I don't care. 
I like Esau better. And I think I'm dying. He didn't die for another 20 plus years. But what about Jacob? He was so close to the Lord. He knew the moment he was going to take his last breath to the point that the very last thing he does is he worships on his staff. God, everything's yours. You're my God. I like this bargain way better than the old life. And then he crawls up into his bed and dies. Knows when his last breath is coming. That's how close he was with the Lord at the end. What a difference. What a difference. You can't take God. You surrender to him. You let him break you. You let him mold you. You let him fall on him and you let him mold you and shape you. You don't want him falling on you. Because when you let him break you, he puts you back together again his way, a better way. One of the saddest statements in the Bible is verse 20 of Joshua 11. When God, the one who doesn't want anyone to perish, who reiterates that statement both in the Old and the New Testaments, I'm not willing that anyone should perish. Why won't you repent? For why will you die? I don't want anyone to perish. The God who doesn't want anyone to perish, one of the saddest statements, is the God who abounds in mercy, who doesn't want anyone to perish, that he becomes someone's enemy and then confirms their stubborn heart so that they won't experience his forgiveness. That's a sad statement, isn't it? It takes a lot for someone to get to that place, but it does come if you keep pushing God away. That answers our first question. And while Joshua has now has control of all these areas, all the kings are defeated, that doesn't mean all resistance gone. Some had stayed out of the conflict, believing themselves safe in their own little citadels. And so in verse 21, we see that Joshua now is going to deal with the giants. It says, and at at that time came Joshua, and he cut off the Anakims from the mountains, from Hebron, from Debir, from Anab, and from all the mountains of Judah, and from all the mountains of Israel. Joshua destroyed them utterly with their cities. There were none of the Anakims left in the land of the children of Israel, only in Gaza, in Gath, and in Ashdod there remain. When Israel, the first generation, disobeyed God and didn't go in to take the land, they had three issues. They said they have walled cities, they have armies that outnumber us, and there are giants. We have all this time. We have 11 and four-fifths chapters that cover the destruction of the walled cities and the innumerable armies. And how many verses do we have dedicated to the giants? Two. Two. It's the race of giants that caused the first group of spies to doubt God and extinguish the people's faith. These giants that were so frightening to Israel have two verses devoted to their defeat. That's it. It's almost like God says, yeah, there's a little asterisk here. We took care of the giants too. No big deal. After the northern campaign was over, Joshua exterminated these giants in Hebron. Hebron's about 20 miles southeast of, of Jerusalem. It's in a hilly country, so, and Hebron was a, a decent-sized city. I don't know if it's on the map, but it's probably somewhere around there, that area. Right? I think that might be right there, but anyway, it's somewhere around there. But um, it just goes in, and it doesn't even mention the battle at all. It just says Joshua took care of them. And you know what that means when we see only two verses dedicated to probably the most frightening thing Israel could imagine? It means that I can face my biggest obstacles knowing that God will triumph over them for me as well because he is the one who's in control and he is the biggest one in the war. Again, there were other pockets of resistance that Israel hadn't dealt with just yet. It says there was no giants left, the Anakims left in the land of the children of Israel, only in Gaza. So we got Gaza down here, Ashdod, I think is right there. It might be up further, I'm not sure. But this area here, Philistia, For whatever reason, the Israelites did not deal with the Philistines. The king of Gath, he did send his army down to help out some of the Canaanites in the southern campaign, but they got whooped and he just left and tucked tail and ran. And because Joshua was going further south, he didn't go and deal with them yet. So the Philistines are still alive. They're not dealt with yet. These three cities that are mentioned here, Gaza, Gath, and Ashdod, they were three of the five royal cities of the Philistines, and they will become one of Israel's fiercest enemies. 
Because the tribe of Dan that was supposed to get this land, this was what the tribe of Dan was supposed to get. Their job was to take out the Philistines. And guess what they did? They said, we don't want to fight the Philistines. We're going to go conquer land way up here and settle there. When we go to the city of Dan and when we go to Israel, it's one of the oldest archaeological digs. It has one of the gates to the city there that is probably one of the oldest gates in, in the world that they've uncovered. And when you see it, and go to this city, you know what you're going to find? You're going to find a city filled with altars to false gods and idols, because that's what Dan did. Dan disobeyed the Lord, went as far away from the land God called them to take as possible, and then they forsook the Lord and worshiped other gods. The city of Dan was where one of the two idols that Jeroboam, King Jeroboam, set up the golden calves and said, these are your gods, O Israel, that brought you out of Egypt. One was in Bethel in the south of part of the northern kingdom, and the other one was up there in Dan because they were already well-practiced in that all throughout their history. We'll learn about them more in Judges, though. Verse 23, the end of chapter 11. Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord said unto Moses. And Joshua gave it for inheritance unto, unto Israel according to the division, their divisions by their tribes. And so the land rested from war. Like I said, there were many small pockets of resistance left. God told Moses that he would leave some of that resistance for individual tribes to deal with. He says so that the wild animals wouldn't just flock to these massive uninhabited regions and, and cause all of these cities to be in disrepair and stuff. It would take time to divide the land and for Israel to move in. But there at this point in time remains no foe that could challenge the entire nation's armies anymore. And so they rested from war. Chapter 12 actually brings us to the end of the first part of Joshua, the war. When we begin chapter 13, we're going to start talking about the divisions of the land. Some parts will feel very tedious. Uh, we'll move through some of it quite quickly because of that. And, and so, but this is where Joshua, people, oh, I love the book of Joshua. And then you start reading it and you get like halfway through it. And you're like, oh man, this is a lot of city names and kilometers are, or, I mean, not kilometers, but measurements are mentioned and all these different things. And so-and-so got this land and the Levites got this city and stuff. Yes, there's a lot of that. And we'll point it out and why it's important to understand those things. But we'll probably move a little bit more rapidly through Joshua until we get to the end of Joshua where he begins to teach and to try to prepare them after his death to keep following the Lord. Much of it will lead to this land distribution that we're going to get to. But chapter 12 comes first, and, and this is a quick chapter. It's just a summary of all the kings that Joshua and the children of Israel conquered. Verse 1, now these are the kings of the land which the children of Israel smote and possessed their land. And we start off here with on the other side, Jordan, toward the rising of the sun, toward the east. And it gives us the boundaries here from the river Arnon unto Mount Hermon and all the plain of the east. Mount Hermon is way up here. And then the river Arnon is the border of Ammon. So it's kind of like Israel's eastern southern boundary is probably like right around here. And then it went up here and it fanned out like this. So that's where the two and a half tribes settled. And uh, it mentions here the kings that were conquered. There were two of them. Verse 2, Sihon, king of the Amorites, who dwelt in Heshbon and ruled from Eroer, which is upon the bank of the river Arnon, and from the middle of the river, from half of Gilead, even unto the river Jabbok, which is the border of the children of Ammon, and from the plain to the Sea of Kinneroth, that's the Sea of Galilee on the east, and unto the Sea of the Plain, that's even the Salt Sea, the Dead Sea on the east, the way to Beth Jeshemoth, and from the south under Ashdod Pisgah, which is a, a mountain that's where, that's where Israel was camped beneath the, the mountain before they went into the Promised Land. So those whole areas, that's where King Sion and his lands were that Israel conquered. 
And then verse 4, and we get to King Og, the coast of King Og of Bashan, which was of the remnant of the giants that dwelled at Ashtaroth and Edri. And he reigned in Mount Hermon and in Salca and all Bashan under the border of the Geshurites and all the Maacathites and half Gilead, the border of Sihon, king of Heshbon. So he had all the northern region of Bashan up here that Israel conquered under Moses. Them did Moses, the servant of the Lord, verse 6, and the children of Israel smite. And Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave it for possession unto the Reubenites, the Gadites, and to the half-tribe of Manasseh. So that was all conquered before we got to Joshua. Now, verse 7, we get to the promised land, the Canaan, land of Canaan. And these are the kings of the country which Joshua and the children of Israel smote on this side, Jordan. So we get to all this side now, all this area. And it gives the borders again. It gave them to us in chapter 11, so I'm not going to mention what they are again. From Baal Gad in the valley of Lebanon in the north, even unto Mount Halak that goes up by Seir, that's in the south, which Joshua gave unto the tribes of Israel for possession according to their division. So the rest of the tribes received their land in Canaan. We'll learn about that in the rest of Joshua. It says, in the mountains and in the valleys and the plains and the springs and the wilderness and the south country, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, all those people were conquered. Israel would settle in all their lands. And then it lists the 31 kings that Joshua defeated. The king of Jericho won, king of Ai, which is beside Bethel won, the king of Jerusalem won. They didn't take Jerusalem yet, but they conquered and killed their king. The king of Hebron won, the king of Jarmuth won, the king of Lachish won, the king of Eglon won, the king of Gezer won, the king of Debir won, the king of Gedir won, the king of Hormah won, the king of Arad won, the king of Libna won, the king of Adullam won, the king of Makeda, if you need any baby names, you're having a baby, you've got, got a good list here. The king of Bethel won, the king of Tapua won, the king of Hefer won, don't use that name. The king of Aphek won, the king of Lasharon won, the king of Madon won, the king of Hazor won, the king of Shimron Miron won, the king of Akshaf won, the king of Tahanak won, the king of Megiddo won, the king of Kadesh won, the king of Jokneam of Carmel won, the king of Dor and the borders of Dor won, the king of the nations of Gilgal won, and the king of Terza won, all the kings thirty and one. There wasn't a single king that stood before Joshua and Moses. God gave a complete victory. And that's why the end of chapter 11 can say, and the land rested from war. We think if the land rested from war, now we get to the second question, then why doesn't Israel dwell in peace and safety? If they rested from war, why doesn't the story end well? What happens? The fighting might be done for Joshua, but even such a great victory as this couldn't truly give Israel rest because we still live in a wicked world. We still have an enemy. And you know, it's no different when we talk about who Joshua foreshadows. He foreshadows the other Joshua, right? Jesus. That's Jesus' name, by the way. Jesus is his anglicized name. It's a Greek name. His name was Joshua. And the Joshua of this book foreshadowed Jesus, who would finish all the war that was necessary for our salvation, right? The Bible says that he defeated Satan. He triumphed over him. He put his foot on his neck, right? But how many of you know that we still are in a battle? Israel was no different. What Joshua accomplished as the leader of the nation didn't negate the need for individual responsibility to enter into that victory. In the same way that Jesus cried, it is finished from the cross, And did everything that was necessary for our salvation, for us to have a relationship with God. 
It does not absolve us from our individual responsibility to take the land that God has given to us. I want to read to you something that Alan Redpath said. I'm going to quote a little bit from this book because it really ministered to me. I had to stop when I was reading some of these and just spend some time in prayer. And he actually mentions that here. He said, when we get to chapter 11 in his commentary, he says, I would pause to say now what is tremendously important, and I don't know how many people realize it, that every precious truth we learn must be applied by faith and appropriated individually in our, into our personal lives, or else it will mean nothing whatsoever. Did you hear that? Here's the reality. You can hear, no, intellectually, Christ died for your sins. He's washed away all your unrighteousness. He's justified you and you stand clean before him. But if you don't apply it to your individual life by faith every day, you can still walk around feeling unforgiven, defeated, and lost. You can still walk around thinking that God's against you, he's not for you, that God doesn't want to bless you, that God doesn't want to use you, right? Most of us have probably been there. Redpath goes on to say, he says, the blessing and the glow and the warmth that we receive in our hearts can be dissipated 10 minutes after we close this book. So he who is to go on with God in this pilgrim journey and walk with Christ in victory and in power until he meets his Lord face to face must seek a quiet place where he can reflect on what God has said to him, where he can thank the Lord for the truth he has received and where he may claim for himself personally what God in Jesus Christ has done for all his church as a body. Do you see the difference? We can come here and we can sing songs about the forgiveness of God, the awesomeness of God, and when we do it as a church, we need to do that. In the same way that we declared that song, is he worthy? And we all said with one voice, he is. But it's very easy to walk away from all of that strength that we have together and to go back to your regular everyday life and to think or say or live like he isn't. To not apply the truths that we learned here by faith, to me here. I have taught for years about justification by faith alone, God's love, God's forgiveness, God's mercy. And by golly, it can be a battle every day to believe it in my own heart that it's real for me. That's why every day I have to get my Bible out. I have to get alone with the Lord. I have to read it again, and I have to apply it to my life by faith. Not to your lives, not to my family's life, not to a creed, but to Will's life. By faith. I have a bookmark that someone gave me years ago, and I keep it in my Bible. And it's John 3.16, but wherever it, where it says the world or all or whosoever, it has my name in it. For God so loved Will, that if he gave his only begotten son, that if Will would believe in him, Will will not perish, but have everlasting life. Because I need to remind myself of that. And I need to apply those truths by faith to my life. I need to be able to walk out there and say, God wants to use me today. Despite all my sin, all my failures, as a dad, as a husband, as a pastor, as a Christian, whatever, every day. Because if I don't, no matter how awesome it will feel to say he is with all of you, tomorrow it would all be forgotten. So it's powerful when we do that. The war was powerful. There were mighty truths that they learned. There were powerful things they saw. And it's why we come to church. But as each tribe and each family would go to their individual land to settle in that, every single one of them had to, by faith, say, God wants to use me. God wants to give me victory over whatever enemies and pockets of resistance remain. God wants me to settle here. He wants to bless me. He wants to give me vineyards that I didn't plant and wells I didn't dig. Not just the nation of Israel, but me. 
And the sad part of the story is, like Redpath mentions here, when the glow and the bask of the warmth of the victory of war as a nation wore off, many of them saw this group and they said, well, they've got chariots and they're in the hills and we're in the valley. And they said, let's make a deal with them. We won't do what God said. Or like the tribe of Dan and said, land, the Philistines look fierce and hard and they got giants. They're the only giants left. Why'd we get that land? We don't want it. We'll go up here. We can do the same exact thing. And when we don't apply the truths of God's word, the truths of the cross, the truths of what Christ did for us on the cross, we don't rest from the war. We go right back into it again. And because we're on our own and not by faith receiving the victory Christ already won for us, guess what? We walk around defeated, even though the war's already won. Redpath says it is true that the victory of the cross was decisive, but it is also true that one will experience only as much of that victory as by faith he appropriates personally. He said the greatest source of conflict in Christian life is not in not being right with God. It's in permitting in one's life that which he knows to be contrary to the will of God. Such a one is then at war with heaven. And the moment he begins to obey instead of resist, to trust instead of doubt the promises of God, immediately his soul rests from war. So what does that rest look like? You know, the New Testament in Hebrews chapter four, it talks about it, how it says, let us labor to enter into that rest. It says, if Joshua would give them rest, then why did David, who hundreds of years later after Joshua was dead and the war was over, say, there remains a rest for the people of God? If Joshua had won the war and, and, the, and, and there was no more rest to be entered into, nothing else for us to do, then why does he say there still remains a rest for the people of God? Because there does. We have to enter into it by faith, leaving behind our dead works, trying to somehow continue to earn God's favor. And, and you know, he says, I already won the war. No, 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 I've got to do my, I've got to, I've got to, I've got to earn my war. You know, I've got to win my war. And the Lord's going, I already won the war. Just enter into victory. Just keep walking in faith. Trust me, do it my way. No, God, I've got to do it my way. I've got to have victory in my life. And the Lord's going, <laughs> I already did it all. Will you just trust me? Will you believe that I love you and I want to bless you? Will you believe that your sins are truly forgiven and you can come to me at any time? Will you believe that? Will you come boldly before my throne of grace so you can find the help, the grace, the mercy that you need? This is the failure of Israel. It's the success of David. You know, we sang the song tonight that Daniel wrote that's based on Psalm 51. And Daniel said, you know what, Lord, I figured something out. You don't want burnt offering and sacrifices. You want this. David wasn't a man after God's own heart because he always got it right. You look at Saul's track record and David's track record. Saul looks like the better man, looks like the godlier man. But you know what? Saul never got it. Never got what God was after. His heart. A relationship. He says, I've already kept my end of the bargain. Will you just trust me and obey me and enter into it? I already won the victory. Rest in my finished work. Alan Redpath says, and I'll leave you with this. He says, are you always worrying about your past sin? Always wanting to drag it up and talk about it with somebody? Always letting it disturb you? Always wanting to discuss it with folks to confess it to others? Beloved, may I say that what God has put under the blood, God has forgotten. So you forget it too. And you rest in the work of Calvary. The rest of the Christian life is not just a rest of forgiveness. It's a rest of an already won victory. We have to learn to trust God. And then in light of that, to know that we're forgiven, know that we're saved, know that we're his, know that he wants to to bless us. When he says, do this, then we go, okay, even though there's chariots up there in those hills, 
even though those people look fierce, even though there's Philistines and giants over there. Okay, because I'm yours, and you wouldn't send me somewhere if you didn't love me. Amen? Let me thank you that it is finished. You finished everything. You won the war. You defeated the enemy, Lord. Now it's for us to enter into the land that you've you won for us, Lord. Lord, we want to be those who are obedient to take the ground you've given to us, whatever obstacles we may face, to trust that you love us, to trust that you're not going to cast us off, to trust that you're not going to leave us out to dry, that you've already won the war. Lord, we want to trust you that you're in control and experience your victory as a result in our individual lives. In Jesus' name, amen. God is so patient and merciful. Even in his judgment, he is always extending a hand of mercy. There is no one too far out of reach from His love and grace. Nothing can separate us from His love. All we must do is turn to Him and accept His free gift. If you have any spiritual or physical needs, please contact us. You can reach us at Calvary Chapel Orlando at 407-523-0800 during our office hours Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will, a ministry of Calvary Chapel Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app, available on iTunes and Google Play. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next time as we continue to learn, walk, and live in the Word.